2: And welcome to the fourth episode of Red Shirts and Runabouts on the Heroes Podcast Network. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, opening up for tonight, Greg Bosco, and I want to turn it over to uh, Derek to introduce himself. Hey,
0: everybody! I'm Derek, one of the other regular hosts here on Red Shirts and Runabouts, and we have our third host, Jeremy. What's up?
1: Hello, and I am Jeremy Monken. Yes, hello. And uh, this week's episode is Choose Your Pain.
2: Yeah, we're going to be talking about the, uh, the fifth episode of the first season, uh, hopefully not the only season, of Star Trek Discovery, um, and kind of similar to last week where we opened up with uh, some of the other stories that bled into the previous episode. We, wanted to, we were kind of kicking around some ideas to talk to all of you about, because um, this episode obviously dealt with a lot of moral, almost ambiguity, on the decision-making for Starfleet and their leadership. And we kind of wanted to do something similar to that and talk about, uh, some of our favorite moral dilemmas before we jump right into the episode that Star Trek has faced. So Derek, I wanted to kick it to you and see what you, what your thoughts on some of the more famous ones or more popular ones or things you liked of the moral stuff Star Trek did in the past.
0: So if we're talking about controversial episodes, things that were morally ambiguous or, or complicated, I don't think you can have that conversation without talking about the Voyager episode
2: tuvix Ooh, that's a that's a surprising choice but it's a good one
0: so for those who don't know tuvix is an episode of voyager where there is a transporter malfunction i know it's crazy uh but there there is and neelix and tuvok get spliced together with a plant and become a new uh, self-aware uh living being that they call tuvix and has uh, a really cool uniform actually, that I always really like, the kind of blended Neelix's weird style with Starfleet. Anyway, uh, it's a very controversial episode because, of course, um, what do you do? You just lost two of your, your main crew members. One of them is a, um, you know, your chief of security and um, a bridge officer. The other is your you know, morale officer, your chef. And there are two lives, and now you've got one life that has his own memories, his own feelings, his own emotions. He's neither Vulcan nor Talaxian. Um, He's a little bit of both, which created this whole new being. And so at the end of the episode, Janeway makes the decision that she needs her crew back, and she essentially, you know, destroys or kills Tuvix and brings back Tuvok and Neelix. Um... It's obviously a very controversial episode because they, just, they kill off a character. They kill off Tuvex. And uh, it's always created a lot of argument in the Voyager community, a big reason why people say that Janeway is a bad captain. Um, and I've always personally thought she made the difficult, correct decision. Um, you know, they're lost in space 75 years from home. And there's no way for them to undo this in a way that saves her two crewmates. And in a crew of you know, what was 139, um, every person counts. And she needed her two crewmates back rather than the the accident that created Tuvix. Um, as terrible as it is to to essentially kill a, a uh, you know a a living intelligent person. So, what do you guys think about that episode?
1: Yeah, I've never seen too much of the actual, um, controversy, like the, the message board fodder and all that. But, uh, I don't know. I never, I never, that didn't strike me as, as too controversial because it is, they, their name is the two people that were destroyed to make this new homunculus. So they, they should both, um, deep inside want to become those people again and have, have those personalities. But yeah, it's, I mean, that's, that's the moral dilemma of it is, is this new, new creation more important than the other two creations and like what is what is the value of one life over two and those those things are always very interesting to contemplate in a sci-fi setting
0: i mean i do feel like she basically took the needs of the many argument right two lives versus one life right um is kind of the perspective she took on that and i i definitely understand
2: yeah and i like it because the episode they could have um they could have made it really cheesy or or Kind of hammy with Tuvix, but I remember clips from the episode where they're talking about Tuvix is making friends and Tuvix is doing a good job and Tuvix is actually helping. And I like it because Janeway was obviously conflicted of because she was even like, I this guy, I kind of like this guy, he's pretty helpful, he's pretty good. But it took two of my crewmen and made him into the one, um, yeah. So I, I this guy's cool, but so were Tuvok and Neelix, so. yeah. I kind of like that because it was yeah. uh. Tuvix kind of brought out the best of both of them individually almost and made it made a person or a character that you could argue was superior to each of them individually but not superior to them when they're by themselves or when it's just the two of them
0: it's kind of the uh, you know the 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 whole is greater than the sum of the parts yeah and that's kind of what it was for Tuvix. Um, which made it, yeah, I think that made it a more difficult decision because you had this character that was incredibly intelligent, incredibly, uh, you know, logical, but at the same time, you know, emotionally understanding and friendly and, uh, just, yeah, the best of both characters.
1: I wonder if in the mirror universe, it was like the opposite and it created knee locks and he was just a garbage combination of all their worst (laughs) traits.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. I love it. I love it. Oh, that's great. So, what about you guys? What did you guys pick? Yeah, go. For, you go first, Jeremy.
1: Uh, sure. So, um, I did. I and I, I am the the next generation obsessive. So, my my first instinct when you asked us about the the moral dilemma, especially with this episode, was uh, the measure of a man, the Ooh. the data centric episode, because a big part of um, choose your pain was is is the uh, uh, now it's completely what 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 is that thing called the water bear? Yeah. The Tardigrade. Tardigrade, yeah. Uh, Is the Tardigrade sentient? Uh, Does the Tardigrade deserve its freedom, or is it just a tool for us to poke and prod? Um, And it actually, I was looking more into the episode, The The Measure of a Man, which is uh, season two, episode nine of Next Generation. Uh, They're the first one outside of the original series to name check the uh, Daystrom Institute. Because oh. uh, that's where they were going to bring uh, data when they when they decommissioned him to to research his neural net and all that. Um, and in this episode, uh, Tilly says, "Should I search the uh, genetic the the classified genetic database from the Daystrom Institute?" So there's a little connective tissue between the shows there.
0: Nice, nice. I, don't, I hadn't recalled that,
1: but yeah, that's that's always been a big um, favorite episode of mine from Next Generation because it it is that you know the the very like quality of his life is, is put on trial, like literally of whether or not he should be allowed to live or whether or not he's just a robot slave of the Federation. And it's pretty, pretty significant um, kind of fleshing out of data's character, not as just a tool of, of the enterprise, but as a, as a unique magical being.
2: Yeah. That's I a think. great episode. You're right.
0: It's a really good point. And, Unlike in Tuvix, data is not – they're not trying to destroy data to save other lives. They're trying to destroy data to essentially create an army of androids that can do, you know, hard labor and things like that, which is something they touch on actually in Voyager with the, uh, the EMH uh, – the, the medical holograms based on uh, Robert Picardo's likeness. Um, so and yeah, the, this is the case and, and the Tardigrade. Yeah. <laughs> So it's a really good point. That's a, an amazing episode. I always thought that Riker had just the hardest job in the world in that oh, episode. Yeah.
1: Oh, I was going to say, yeah, um, that's a lot of the cast. They they cite that as their favorite episode and it won a bunch of awards. So from like a storytelling perspective outside of the, the narrative of the show, it, it's a pretty impactful episode to like, it really established Next Generation
2: kind of as, as an artful show. No, you're right. And there's a, there's that really touching scene at the towards the end with between Riker and, and Data when Riker's like, you know, because of me, you almost you were almost taken from Starfleet. And Data shot back. He's like, well, Commander Riker, it's my understanding. If you didn't take the position, they were gonna summarily rule against me anyways. And right. it's just it's it's an amazing episode.
0: I mean, can you imagine that position for Riker? He was basically told, you have to convince us to take him apart or we'll take him apart. Yeah. Like those were his two choices. And, yeah. You know, um, Riker, I mean, Riker and data meeting is one of the very first scenes in the next generation on the holodeck where he's, where data trying to whistle. He jumps you know, out of a and,
1: tree. Uh,
0: yeah, exactly. And you know, Wesley falls in the, the creek because apparently he can't swim in two inches of water. Uh, sorry, Wesley. Wesley. Uh, <laughs> But they, they always had a really good relationship, especially, and it continues, you know, all the way through the show into the movies and, and all of that. Um, so that must have been a really tough moment for those characters.
2: And for myself, this is going to be a little a little out of left field. It's the, uh, the two part series from Deep Space Nine about Homefront and the episodes Homefront and Paradise Lost. And. It's the episodes where Starfleet is starting to kind of really realize the uh, the infiltration tactics of the Dominion and the episodes deal with, you know, Admiral Layton trying to use his position to bring in his key people that are loyal to him and kind of almost an attempt that he did, he attempted an actual military coup along the lines of, you know, who's going to defend Earth if it's not me, you know, the Dominion are here, the Changelings are here, they're... Who knows who could they who they could be and there's there's scenes with uh, Starfleet true or yeah Starfleet soldiers slash troops you know on the patrolling the streets of New Orleans and other cities and yeah the Lakota and the Defiant actually fire on each other for the first time Starfleet ships fire on each other in a long time and if you think and the one thing I always stood out about the episodes to me is you know I think they came out in '96 and it's it's the pre-war on terror days almost using war on terror mythos from real life before that even started. And if those episodes aired today, I think the reaction would be vastly different. But they were five years before that all started. And the idea to us as Star Trek fans and fans of Starfleet and the the lore, the idea of Starfleet taking over, I think, is just so foreign and alien to us that it's hard to even imagine um, it's hard to even imagine Starfleet personnel wanting to do that, but Leighton obviously had a huge following. He had he had people in Starfleet Academy using that elite Red Squad, and he <laughs> uh, Red Squad yeah Red Squad and he was <laughs> he was outfitting other starships. And the Lakota, which was an old Excelsior, was going pound for pound against the Defiant. And even the, there's the line from O'Brien in the show going, "I don't know what what happened to that Excelsior, but somebody upgraded their weapons pretty pretty powerful." And it's just. It's like the. Are you willing to the, like the line Paradise Lost? Are you willing to sacrifice paradise to save it?
0: Mm-hmm. Deep Space Nine, I, I think, did that kind of thing well a few times. Um, I mean, the whole Maquis thread is is about you know terrorist groups and how you know it's not always black and white. And bringing the spring Starfleet into it and basically saying that they want a military takeover of of the Federation is huge. You know, I mean, that, that type of thing has happened in human history. Um, and so it's it's a real thing that has happened, and so why couldn't it happen in the future? Um, a, a similar episode, from my standpoint, and I'm, draw, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the episode, but it's Deep Space Nine, and it's where Cisco essentially nukes and destroys an entire planet's atmosphere just to catch his old Starfleet buddy who turned Maquis. Yeah. And yeah, that's-
1: yeah, that Maquis stuff in DS Nine that was very challenging. I, I remember just how impactful a lot of those episodes were when I was, you know, I was a young teenager watching those episodes when they first aired. And they, you know, it's, I, I Starfleet was just like a thing that I wanted to be in as a little kid. And it was, you know, I put a put a com badge on my chest and I was like, haha, I'm Starfleet." But to portray Starfleet as such like a villainous, overstepping like you know force like that it's it's a very challenging thing to kind of you know see your
2: see your darlings in such a dark light and there's the end of the episode when or during the episode when the changeling impersonates o'brien and he's talking to cisco and the whole time you're watching this episode you're looking at this starfleet fighting starfleet everybody had the thought in the back of their mind was this a dominion plot the whole time get one of the most stable and strongest governments in in the alpha quadrant to start fighting amongst themselves as other wars are starting to rage. And it's, you know, obviously we never know if that happened because Leighton wasn't a changeling, but there's that line where he says to Cisco, he's like, you know, it's not over. I have enough loyal officers to, you know, make my final stand or to continue to fight. And Cisco's like horrified and Cisco, who has done questionable things like you mentioned, Derek, or he's going to do more questionable things, wants to do whatever he can to defend the Federation. And, He's basically screaming it late. And, like, who are you going to fight? Are you going to fight the whole Federation? That's not the war that we've been preparing for. And I like it, it right. touched on so many real tones. And the military coups throughout history have primarily been pretty horrible things. And mm-hmm. they even hit to even hint at it happening in Starfleet is something I don't think many of us have ever even thought of before.
0: Yeah. No, I think it's a really good point. Um,. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, it's Into Darkness, the movie, I know it's kind of a sullen note, but uh, Into Darkness touches on it a bit too. Um, as much as I, I don't like Into Darkness, and that's a conversation for another time, the whole concept of the vengeance in Section 31 and what Peter Weller was doing, or Admiral Marcus was doing, um, had to do with this militarization of Starfleet. And what does that mean? Is Starfleet a military organization or not? You know, it, it, there's this ca- kind of back and forth where I think many times Starfleet doesn't know what it is.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting to see that side of Starfleet open up a lot more in Discovery, where... Like in um, enterprise, we see it exclusively as as an exploration and TNG. It's it's mostly exploration and diplomacy, discovery. It's it's fully into the militarization, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that goes as they get deeper into the conflict. If it goes into that full uh, into darkness route, where they are like, well, we need mega destroyers to to combat the Klingons.
0: Well, even the original, uh, the the original Enterprise, the Constitution class, has been labeled as both. These were our the Constitution class was our ship of exploration, and at the same time was built to fight the D seven battlecruiser during the Klingon War. So, it's, right. which is it, right? Was it designed for deep space exploration, or was it designed for war? And you know, even the Galaxy class had that same back and forth, where it's got the best engines, it's got the best weapons. But it also has schools and children on board and, you know, a hair salon. So, like, what is it?
2: <laughs> yeah. And speaking of what is it, that might be a good segue to discuss arguably, may, could be most people's favorite episode of Discovery so far, Choose Your Pain. And Yeah. wow, um, they threw you in, they threw all of us into that story pretty quick with this episode. Uh, it's, uh, what do you... It's the first. Is this the first time we've seen a true Klingon prison ship?
0: <laughs> Ever? I, I mean, it might be.
1: Did we not see the D seven at all in the the previous Klingon arcs?
0: Well, we saw the D seven, but I, I was unclear if the D seven was also the same ship that they called the prison ship, or mm. if the D seven took him to the prison ship after after the abduction. Oh, huh. Um but I guess before we go any further, uh, spoiler alerts: <laughs> if you have not seen Star yes. Trek Discovery episode five, "Choose Your Pain," we will be diving into spoilers so, and, now. And we need
1: we, we need like a code black for spoiler territory. Code
0: spoilers, that's right. <laughs> yes, I love it.
2: Um, but <laughs> if you, when we start at the opening of the episode, when the, the group, when the admirals and the and Captain Lorca are talking and. It kind of even gives you more of a validation, and I know we were mentioning this a couple weeks ago that Starfleet relies a lot on the Discovery and Lorca, and it's getting to the point where they're like, you've you've been doing a lot, but but they're start the Klingons are starting to figure out what what's going on, and you know you're a great ship and you're a great captain, but there's an underlying tone of you know at some point you're going to be caught between thirty more D7s and and Klingon and birds of prey. And then you're going to be on your own, um, right? I don't know. I, I was kind yeah, of wondering the uh, what were you guys' thoughts on the way they were treating Lorca when that was going on.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. Lorca kind of has this personality of of like a almost like a like a privateer, like a pirate captain who's like he's got the most kills in the fleet, and he's our secret weapon against the enemy. But you know, he's he's Push too far, and we need to, to reel him back because he's getting, you know, he's just getting out there too much. It's it was interesting to see him because we don't we don't know if that's stuff that's happened since the tardigrade drive was fully activated, or if that's stuff before Michael joins the Discovery and and he was a real effective tool beforehand. It seems like there's a bit of a time jump between episodes uh, four and five, where maybe the Discovery has been just like. All over the place doing stuff and using the tardigrade gra- drive to a great great effect because they make it sound like not only have they done a bunch of jumps to deplete the tardigrade, but he's he's been this you know war hero. So I I, I just wonder what we've missed.
0: So it's it's a little confusing because the drive did not work before they got the tardigrade off of the Glen. Um, And then according Mm. to Memory Alpha, uh, and for those who don't know Memory Alpha, it's uh, basically as close to an official Star Trek wiki as you're going to get, they're they're saying that this episode takes place three weeks after uh, episode four, The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. Um, So it's only been three weeks. Now, I guess if they can jump that quickly, maybe they've done 20 missions or 15 missions. And they've been a big deal behind enemy lines. Yeah. it's hard to say. They didn't really quantify.
1: In Episodes 3 and 4, it was six months since the the Battle of the Binary Stars. And in this one, he talks to Prisoner Ash something, whatever the guy's name is. Um, and he said he's been in that prison for seven months since the Battle of the Binary Stars. So, right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's It's an interesting time frame thing. But it, it certainly sounds like the ship was designed specifically for this type of warp drive, or spore drive, excuse me. And now that the war really broke out, now it's absolutely a warship. I, I find it hard to believe that they designed and built the ship in the six months after the war. I imagine this ship existed in design prior to the war breaking out. So I believe it was supposed to be a science vessel since, you know, 80, 90% of the crew are science. It's a Yeah, it's a yeah. science
2: vessel now functioning as a warship instead of a warship that was just made to be a science ship. I would agree with that.
1: Yeah, I mean, and Lorca even says in, I forget if that's three or four, but he says we're no longer a science vessel, we're now a a warship.
2: Right. And it's interesting, because if you think of the episode name, and we won't spoil everything so far, but the Choose Your Pain, even though that's a line the Klingons use, most of the characters in the episode are kind of going through their own pain or growth. Whether it's Saru or Burnham, obviously Lorca, obviously Tyler but it kind of applies to a lot of them which is a pretty neat way of using the title to you think the title is going to be one thing and you're like oh wait this is kind of everybody
1: yeah and i'm i'm happy to see them go back to like this was a big big problem i had with episode 4 was the totally detached a story and b story uh now they're back to like episode 3 where they have the the two parallel narratives where they both are are actually in working in parallel and feeding each other which is something for drastically lacked. Um, so to that
0: to that point, was there at any time in this episode where you thought they were not going to get stuck as soon as they used the tardigrade to jump to find Lorca?
1: Oh no, that was telegraphed <laughs> pretty early on. <laughs> it was it was actually telegraphed from the very onset, which was the now third um, dream sequence we've seen from Michael Burnham. It's like we we keep seeing her have these stress dreams. Mm -hmm. There were two in the first two episodes and now, now this one in episode five, it's becoming a very, uh, repeated convention for the show.
0: I felt like that, that plot for this episode suffered the, um, suffered a fate that many sitcoms do where characters get themselves into a bad situation simply because they don't explain themselves well. Um, and I feel like if she had went to Saru and said, Hey, it's not that we think the tardigrade is being hurt there's a good chance it may die and we'll get stuck there. If that sentence had come out of Michael's mouth, maybe Saru would have been more cautious. But she never says that. She just says that it's bad for the tardigrade. Well, from Saru's perspective, what is he supposed to do? He picked the best option that was available to him, given the data that he had. So it's that same situation. If Michael had just given him all of the details, maybe they would not have jumped
1: to get Lorca. At at the same time, they, they, they didn't know that what would happen when the, the tardigrade was depleted. Cause like actual tardigrades, they're supposed to be indestructible.
2: That's a good point. And Saru kind of even uses that language with Burnham and he's like, so the, the tardigrade will be hurt, but it's our only chance to save captain Lorca. And he didn't have all the information and maybe Burnham didn't, couldn't say for for certain cause her and Stamets were still kind of evaluating what was going on with the tardigrade. But, uh, so I mean, the, when the, the Klingons capture Lorca, and that's the genesis of the whole using the Tardigrade to to jump to find Lorca. I I, I hope you know the Klingons kind of just appearing and capturing them was. I mean, it was cool. It was good for TV show tension. I mean, we're all kind of asking where did where did the Klingons come from, and how did they know he was going to be just right there? And but those are questions that you know Starfleet and Star Trek always ask. We can't we can't read too much into that kind of side of the story because I know people are complaining about it online.
0: No, it's, it's a good point though. I mean, when you think about it, they don't have their cloaking devices yet per the previous episode. So how did this Klingon D seven battle cruiser, which is their biggest, you know, war machine get so deep into Federation space that it could grab a captain shuttle,
1: especially like a block away from Starfleet headquarters or wherever they're having this meeting. And again,
2: there's no other Starfleet ships around. Hey, look, a Klingon ship.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah.
2: Long range scanners are offline.
1: (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. Nobody could track it. They couldn't give them any information. Like, that's just, that was a little silly. That made, that
2: was just for the episode. It's the, Uh, it's the famous line I always said, the Klingons were hiding. They somehow warped right into a magnetic field of a moon and nobody could find them. Yeah. They
1: were on the other side of a star. Like like
0: in Star Trek 09, where they warp into... Was it Titan? Yeah. Um, I think is is what they warp <laughs> into. It's a beautiful <laughs> scene. <laughs> a very beautiful scene,
2: but nobody can see... There you go. It, was stay, it stayed hidden. But, okay, so the, the capture of Lorca kind of spurs all this. But mm-hmm. the Lorca... I mean, we've seen Starfleet and Star Trek kind of go the torture route with some characters. You know, Picard, with the, when he was captured by the Cardassians, obviously went through it. Um... Well there's there's I think what might have been a subtle allusion to that
1: that there are four lights episode is when they first start torturing Lorca, they turn on three lights. Yeah. And to to mess and, with his eyes. It's like, oh, they got they got that out of the Cardassian playbook. It's look. like they
2: they immediately know he's got eye damage and they don't even waste any time. They just pry his eyes open, they just blast him with whatever. Yep. <laughs>
0: No, it seems like a good beginning of a torture technique because you're not causing any legitimate damage, right? And so it's a good opportunity to see if you can break this guy without necessarily killing him or you know getting him close to death. Um, and I thought it was a good excuse to kind of put Harry Mud on the defensive because you know, how would the Klingons know about that?
1: No, you're right. Well, he dropped his he dropped he dropped his eye spray in his shuttlecraft. They might. Yeah, but they, I
0: mean. I guess if they saw that, maybe.
1: Maybe. Um, before we get too deep into the the Klingon torture aspect, um, I wanted to mention while Lorca was at the space station, um, who's who's the, the woman that he was talking to? I didn't catch her name.
0: Oh, the the admiral. Yeah. A- admiral admiral uh, Cornwall. Is that who you mean?
1: Cornwall. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, she said that they are mass producing spore drives at a plant in Iowa. That's that's an interesting thing to, to keep in the back of our minds. So apparently they, because the, uh, yeah, stamens uh, released the uh, specs on the the spore drives. So now their Starfleet has a bunch of those spore drives. It'll be interesting to see where where that goes.
0: I do like that it was Iowa because you know that's where the Enterprise was built in the Kelvin timeline, um, and that's where Kirk was born, of course. Um, so that, that's kind of a nice little nod to to the previous stuff um yeah i mean it certainly means that if they go away from that technology which i feel like they have to at some point they'll have a lot of tech that they need to destroy pretty well up until now i just thought it was convenient well it's one ship so they'll just destroy that ship at some point
1: yeah no they starfleet has them mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: but anyway back to the uh hairy mud in the mix yes.
0: I liked it. I think this is the first time I've really enjoyed Mud as a character.
2: <laughs> you didn't. You didn't like the the Women of Mud episode, and uh, <laughs> <they> were...
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to. I mean, it's nothing on the acting. It's the writing. That character was just not a good character, in my opinion. And so, when everybody was all up in arms about wanting him to be in one of the movies, and all this other stuff, and then they announced him for this show. I was like, really? Like of all the characters, Mud, but Rain Wilson brought it, and oh, actually, yeah. like first time I've ever liked the character in any respect. Just brought a lot of depth and emotion to that character that made him so much more interesting.
2: Well, and it's kind of funny because if you think of Next Generation, um, they almost had their own Harry Mud type character with the in the outrageous Okana episode. Well. I mean, which was very, which was obviously very early on episode. Um, but, but the yeah. character was more roguish. He was more joking. He was more entertaining. He kept hitting on all the, the, the women of the crew and it kept driving all the Star Trek, uh, excuse me, all the Enterprise officers just crazy. Um, but then at the end of the episode, he turns out he's just basically almost like a courier who just happens to be eccentric.
1: Yeah. And Next Generation worked, worked that trope a few times with the, the rakish. Space pirate traitor that kind of shows up on their doorstep and then gets them into antics. That was, I think that probably happened at least four or five times. I think you're right.
0: Well, and Mud, I believe, is only in three episodes, one of which is the animated series. Yeah. So I'm not sure why he's so beloved. I know, of course, there weren't really any recurring minor characters in the original series outside of the crew, but. Uh, I just thought that Rain Wilson made the character so much more interesting. We would learn we kind of learn, assuming he's telling the truth, uh, how he becomes this kind of pirate character, that he was really trying to woo a woman and, and her family and got on the wrong side of, you know, mob bosses, essentially.
1: He missed uh, his I, moon payments. He did, he missed his moon payments.
0: <laughs> which uh, I, I just got done listening to the audiobook of Ready Player One, and so that's got some funny little connections <laughs> for me. Yeah. But uh, But yeah, so I, I just thought that Rain Wilson did a fantastic job and I'm glad that we're supposed to see more of him rather than before where I was nervous we were seeing him at all.
2: And the torture stuff aside, how'd you like how Mud called out Lorca for his previous command? So good. So good. I liked seeing him not be
0: scared of Lorca or of a Starfleet captain. Of Still, even though he's in this prison and he got himself in this situation, he's still his own man. He's still confident. He's still strong-headed. And I, I like where that can lead the character.
1: I also like um, seeing that that other angle of the Federation from from the private traders and the the you know the Boomers um, their their idea of the Federation as being kind of kind of sellouts, um, especially when it comes to getting getting them into trouble and getting them into conflicts with Klingons. It's interesting to see that side of it. That probably until DS Nine, you never really saw people complaining about the federation getting non-federation people into into sticky situations.
0: It is a really good point though, right? Because, you know, we only see in Star Trek as the main crew if you put, you know, DS9 aside, we see the best of the best. We see the elite officers. Right. You know, if you're the first officer on the Federation flagship, you know, um, then you're pretty up there. These are not mid-level cadets. These are not, you know, poor people or minors or blue collar people. These are the absolute best the academy has to offer. And that's where we see it from. Um, and I thought that, that was really cool to kind of bring it down to earth for a minute. Like not everybody had an opportunity to go to the academy. Not everybody would have been successful there. Some people have to mine. Look at those, the lithium mines that they showed in the previous episode. There are people in those mines, just like there are people in coal mines today. Um, Those are hard, difficult jobs that are not um, luxurious or anything like that.
1: Yeah, I think it was well into next generation before you started actually seeing like colonists that were saying, um, you know, the Federation has not... Supported us, the Federation has kind of left us to our own devices. You guys are not the the universal source of good, um, but yeah, it's it's all it's all bridge crew until DS Nine, where you're you're finally seeing people that aren't Starfleet.
0: Well, not even just not Starfleet. You look at Chief O'Brien; he's an enlisted officer. That's even different, right? Yeah. Um, you know the fact that he he sees himself as a different kind of Starfleet officer, as the one in the trenches. Um, he's been tortured before and ends up being tortured during the show. And um, he's not one of those bridge officer kind of guys. And there's always been, there was that dynamic they built on Deep Space Nine between him and Cisco, let alone people not in Starfleet at
1: all.
2: Yeah, that's a good
1: point. Him and Cisco and him and Bashir. That was, that was always my fun. My favorite uh, interaction was like, Hard ass O'Brien with goof off Bashir.
2: <laughs> so that, that's uh, kind of a good segue because obviously you know Lorca with mud. They uh, they encounter the new crewman Tyler, um, who was a prisoner. Right? You guys, when you guys mentioned, I, I'm trying to remember, was it six months, seven months since the war began? Seven seven, months, basically, yeah. a prisoner the whole time, and he goes through some pretty horrible stuff as well. Some mm-hmm. some story aspects that Star Trek typically doesn't go along with uh, you know when he's like the, the Klingon captain here has taken a liking to me and which was... now now that I
1: think about it so how how has he been the the like sex you know sex toy of Laurel if Laurel was stuck on the stranded Klingon ship for so long how does that work out because isn't isn't Lorel the same
0: yeah so there's a theory going around. I I, I don't think the theory works, and I'll, I'll tell you why. But there is a theory that uh, Tyler, Ash Tyler, is not a human, but he is actually Voke, the Klingon uh, albino um, huh. that L- Lorel stands beside. Because she does say that he is going to have to give up everything in order oh. to succeed. And that may even include giving up being Klingon, which is the most important thing to to the Klingons, or or to remain Klingon. That's their thing, especially in this show. So, there's a fan theory that he is folk, and she planted him there to get in with Lorca and end up on the Discovery, or end up on, you know, a Federation ship, even if they don't know about the Spore Drive.
1: That makes a lot of sense. But
0: The reason it doesn't really work for me is that uh, unless their technology is incredibly advanced... As soon as they go on board the Discovery, they're going to go through a physical because they've been tortured, and they would find out that this person has extra organs, since Klingons have duplicated organs, basically, for all of them, something that's mentioned about Worf multiple times in Deep Space Nine and TNG. So I'm curious, if that's the direction they're going, how advanced could their technology be at this point? Yeah, because...
1: Also, I noticed Lorel had four nostrils. I hadn't noticed that in previous episodes. Oh no, I missed that too. She
2: al- yeah, she really defined four nostrils. in She her also head. has uh, some new face damage from the disruptor that just hit, hit close to her. That was pretty um, that was pretty horrible. Uh, but again, it, the it, the the theory while it may not work because I I agree with you, Derek. The Klingons are physiologically different. Darwin, you remember the Tribbles found him out in Trouble with Tribbles. Um, <laughs> Right, and yes. Now maybe Lorca's Tribble on the Discovery. We'll, fi- we'll find out, Tyler. <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll oh, start man. going off.
0: <laughs> is that the MacGuffin this entire time? Is this Tribble sitting <laughs> on his desk? The, the Tribble <laughs> solves
2: it all. I knew it. Um, but I got to I got to give credit to Star Trek and the Discovery crew because, you know, torture on TV is always a very sensitive topic and you can do it in a gratuitous sense that people just recoil from. And, you know, the, the ideal of... You know, the only way to describe it is a, the sexual assault background for a, a prisoner if he is a Starfleet officer. Starfleet's never really done that before. Star Trek, excuse me, never really done that before. And again, it kind of goes to what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. Uh, Discovery is definitely on a different plane of existence compared to the other Star Trek shows. With its, we're gonna, we're not only are we gonna talk about real subjects with you, we're gonna punch you in the gut at the same time we talk to you about them.
1: Didn't didn't Mirror Universe. Uh, Kira have some kind of it was... kind of sexual harassment aspect to her character? I, I, I feel like she had some kind of creepiness in along that flavor. I think you're... Do you mean Hoshi? Was it Hoshi?
0: Hoshi. So, here's where... So, they get around that in Enterprise because, yeah, she basically is the concubine of Archer, but she's only doing that so she can end up betraying him, and she ends up becoming the Empress of the Terran Empire by the end of that. So... No,
1: I, I went, meant Kira. I, I, I'm just now watching Enterprise. I think Kira uh, Kira
2: had something going on with everyone. I think it's almost like she used her her position and her attractiveness as like another tool to control people. Um, and again, it's we don't we don't know what's going on with this Tyler character. If it's if the theory Derek shared is true, it's a whole different dynamic. And again, if it's not, and Tyler is just a regular Starfleet officer, that really really kind of shows klingons or they'll do basically whatever they want to their prisoners. Also,
1: how how could two normal humans who have been tortured and starved for, you know, some number of days overpower two very orc-looking klingon guards?
0: Yeah, that did not really work for me either. So that does lend credence. It lends credence to the theory though because the guards let them win.
1: Yeah. Also, those – I mean, these guards look like a whole nother species of Klingon now, the, the choose-your-pain guy. he I mean, the, the ridges were different. The head shape was different. I feel like every time we see a new Klingon, it's like a new species.
0: I mean, you know, I know this argument has been, been brought up in the past, but a lot of Klingons have looked different over the years. You see Christopher Lloyd's Klingon versus Christopher Plummer's Klingon um, yeah. in Star Trek's 3 and 6 um of course you had worf who between episode 1 of tng and nemesis uh, looks very different um you know so i am trying to let that slide as much as possible um i will say as far as the theory goes is if that was really the goal is that uh tyler is volk then why would Lorel come after him in that hallway for them to fight at all what's what's the point of that
1: yeah Though I mean, could have been staged as well,
0: but there was no reason to stage it because Lorca went to go look in the hangar, and he easily could have come back and just had Tyler be there. That's yeah.
2: true.
0: You know, it doesn't that doesn't aid their escape in any way or aid the the plan. Lorca's bought into it; he already trusts Tyler at this point as a Starfleet officer. So Lorel risks everything by doing this because she ends up getting brutally hurt. Um, and it could have ended up being a lot worse. Yeah,
1: yeah, but but also, Lorelle goes into that uh, hallway. Is she even armed? Does she take a shot, or does she just run out there? I think she just
2: ran <sighs> out oh. there. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. But if you, if you look at the way the the mud interaction, the betrayal, and the bug with the the uh, the, the not the camera, but the microphone on it, and Tyler and Lorca bonding it's almost kind of simultaneous to what's going on in Discovery with Burnham bonding a lot more with Stamets and even bonding more with Saru and we got to see more character attributes to Saru that I I can't explain it I think all human we're all our own harshest critics just in our daily lives and I like that they're starting to show that about Saru he's he wants to be so successful at what he does that he blames Burnham for what happened to Giorgio. And
0: Well, I loved the scenario he builds where he wants to have the computer basically grade him on his performance as acting captain. Yeah. And
2: you're I right. Mean, and when he asks the, the computer for guidance and the computer's like, well, you could also eliminate the threat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Not it's, an option. It's,
1: it's really interesting to see um, Saru as, as the insecure first person. You know, number one, because so far we've seen Spock, who's incredibly like all of the Vulcans, pretty much every alien or or android they have on board in that kind of command position. It's always someone who is brings so much intelligence and so much confidence to the the mix. It's, It's really interesting to see someone who is so insecure and second guesses themselves and 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 makes the wrong decision.
0: Yeah. I mean, think of all the first officers. You have Spock, you've got Riker, um, you've got uh, um, Dax. Well, I guess Kira in Deep Space Nine um, is really the first officer. Um, And then in uh, Voyager, of course, you've got Chakotay, who's really a captain. Right. And Enterprise, you have T'Pol, who she's as confident as it gets. Yeah. So... They've always been characters who are at the top of their game in some respect. Um, maybe Chakotay, simply because he had all of his issues uh, with Starfleet, and then, of course, being betrayed multiple times by his own crew in the Maquis. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, Saru is very unsure of himself, but he wants to be good. He wants to be the best that he can be. And I love that he created that protocol system, and they showed some really interesting names when they showed the decorated captains. All but one of them, uh, you know, existed in uh, canon prior to Discovery, with Georgiou being the addition. Uh, they showed uh, Robert April, Jonathan Archer, Matthew Decker, and Christopher Pike.
2: Good old Matthew Decker. Um, <laughs> um, and the thing, you, when you mentioned the first officers... You know, Spock goes on to become a captain, Riker goes on to become a captain, Kira gets promoted to Bajoran colonel, which is the Bajoran equivalent to a captain, I believe. Um, Chakotay was a captain, so it's like all their second-in-commands were basically elite in their own right. I mean, Riker was offered a command, what, three times and rejected it? Yeah.
0: And Chakotay becomes a captain, again, in the books that follow Voyager, what they kind of dub season eight, uh, written by, uh, and Beyer, so, um... Or Kirsten Beyer, excuse me. Um, yeah, so yeah, they all move up in the ranks.
1: It's interesting in this one to see um, a parallel situation from episodes one and two where it's Michael coming to Saru with a hunch that needs to be acted on based on her instincts and him shutting her down. But whereas that one they didn't fire on the Klingons because Giorgio recovered from her nerve pinch, uh, this one she goes uh, behind Saru's back and does all the tardigrade stuff, um, it, it really kind of like all of this time he's been second guessing and, and mad at Michael for, for her impetuousness and, and trying to put herself in that position of command when she, when he thinks she doesn't
2: deserve it. Um, but now he, he does see that she deserves it and she was right. Well, and I like the dynamic because when Saru and her are interacting with each other, in a sense, I'm starting to get the impression Saru also wants to impress Burnham. Cause she was his first officer as well when she was the first officer to Georgia. So she was his second in command. Or he was, you know what I mean. Um, and he was constantly looking up to her and he challenged her a lot. But he also did respect her. He just thought she was did things a little more unusual than him. And I, I...
0: Oh, he, yeah. He's definitely trying to show that he is good at his job, if not maybe better than her in certain situations. And it's
2: fun seeing characters grow and develop because that's something we as day-to-day humans are doing every whether it's at work whether it's at a, a hobby whether it's with our family we're always trying to grow and improve and impress and make those around us proud at least most people are trying to do something like that and it's good to add that dynamic because it, it turns it from just their two Starfleet officers to now you can see the way he's looking at her and talking to her talk talking to her at the end he's now viewing her again as a colleague and a comrade
0: yeah, I, I really appreciated how honest he was with her uh, in the end, in her quarters, about how he said, you know, the plan was that you get your own command and, and then I get to yep. learn from Captain Giorgio That was supposed to be me. And that's the thing. It's so personal to him that she stole an experience from him that he deemed very important and special.
2: And she gave him the telescope.
1: It also kind of shows that he discounts the value of um, Lorca as a captain. He's- oh, Yes. Yeah, he's still looking up to Giorgio when when he's got Lorca that he could potentially learn from, but I don't think he's interested in learning what Lorca has to teach.
0: Well, but if you look at the list of decorated captains, Lorca's not on that list. Giorgio is. You know, she was a wartime captain. She admits that. uh, But that did not have her lose her humanity. She was able to keep it, uh, which I think if you look at these captains, I mean, look at this list. Three of them were captains of an Enterprise. Um, and another one similar to Giorgio, I mean, lost his entire crew. You know, these are, these are captains that went through really difficult things. Robert April, the first captain of the Constitution class enterprise, Archer had to, you know, travel all the way to the Zindi system to try and save Earth with one lone ship. And at one point, had to steal engine parts from civilians just to keep the ship going because Earth was hanging in the balance. But they all came back and ended up being human people still. Um, Lorca's kind of lost that. He he
1: killed his own crew. He
0: killed his own crew on purpose. Yes, he did. That's that's a big one. I mean, Decker lost his, but it wasn't on purpose. And
2: Decker felt obviously horrible and traumatized for it for basically ever. I mean, look what happened. (laughs) Look what he does.
0: Yeah, I mean... (laughs) He wants revenge, you know, because his crew was killed and he he obviously didn't want that. Where Lorca, I mean, yeah, I understand he thinks that death is better than Klingon torture. And maybe he's right from that one sentence, but he kills hundreds of people on purpose.
1: And he escaped torture himself. So, you know, it kind of negates his own point where if torture is something escapable with a couple good punches and, and a... run down a hallway it's like he killed hundreds
2: of people that could have done that too and maybe that goes to the point that uh there's a lot more going on in Lorca's brain with wanting to win this war so badly that maybe he's going to continue putting himself in more situations where he might be the only target
0: so did you guys hear
2: the other theory
0: about Lorca so there is a theory uh, mainly based on how his eyes work, his demeanor, how he's not what we come to know Starfleet officers to be. And a picture uh, that I believe was an Entertainment Weekly or Variety, something like that, um, that shows the Discovery plaque, the, the dedication plaque on the wall being the ISS Discovery, is that this Lorca is the Mirror Universe Lorca.
2: Ooh. Hmm. Now,
0: again... I don't buy that theory either, Um, mainly because I think we're just going to now see the Mirror Universe because I think the Tardigrade and the Spore Drive have something to do with it. Uh, That was the big tease at the end of the episode. I do not think that Lorca has any clue about the Mirror Universe at this point.
1: Also, I wonder if that hint... um, I mean, the last shot, so to give away the big ending twist, we see uh, stamens who injects himself with Tardigrade DNA uh, to do the final jump after the uh, Tardigrade goes through cryptobiosis and becomes unviable. <laughs> um, we see Stamens walk away from looking at himself in a mirror, and there's still a mirror version back. Do you think that's... I was I was wondering if that means this last jump put them into the mirror universe.
0: No, I didn't think that. I thought that maybe... It had something to do with merging the wall between the two. Um, Because I know that's always kind of the issue is how do you jump across? And it's always taken and always, of course, is like, you know, two episodes um, took a transporter malfunction because in Enterprise, uh, we don't move into the Mirror Universe. The episode just takes place in the Mirror Universe Um, and as a crossover with uh, an original TOS episode. So I think in this case, maybe we um, shattered the wall between those two universes maybe the spore network connects both universes
2: and I, I do I'm starting to enjoy the jokes online of uh, you know the tardigrade is is basically um, one of the navigators from dune and yeah <laughs> and the and the spores are obviously the spice because it I but you know when when the tardigrade went into the cryptobiosis I'll admit it it kind of played on my heartstrings a little bit because you know it's the the joke that you see a human get hurt on a tv show and you're like meh but you see a dog or a cat or an animal and it just it just plays a different tone and it's kind of like that with the tardigrade and you could see the pain in Burnham's face when she realizes what's going on and and Stamets, and Stamets and Stamets is continuing to grow more from just a hardcore engineer scientist to starting to show a lot of his emotions, starting to show a lot of trust in Burnham where, you know, in the, excuse me, three episodes ago, he basically wanted nothing to do with her at all. He didn't want to be in the same room as her.
1: Well, and the we fact. also learned the big, the big thing about, uh, statements is that he's in a relationship with the doctor.
0: Yes. Um, I knew that he was in a, a, a same sex relationship, but I wasn't sure when they were going to introduce that, um, I thought it said so much about his character that he was willing to inject himself to use his own invention to get everybody home rather than risk somebody else's life. I thought that was a lot of growth for a guy who, a couple episodes earlier, was just in competition with a buddy
2: of this. Yes, he was willing to sacrifice himself to save others, which, has Lorca done that? We don't know if Lorca's ever done anything like that, but we do know Stamitz just did, which... From a leadership point of view, that's how you get people to want to follow you, is you're willing to go into the trenches, same as anybody else. And he just did that with a machine that they had no idea what that machine would do to a human.
0: I mean, Lorca does go back to get Tyler. I mean, he does do that, um, which
1: he did not have to do. Also, from when, when looking at Stamen's as a character, you have to ask, did he do that as self-sacrifice to save people? Or did he do that because, as in his words, it's fucking cool? Well, he
0: does say at the end when he is talking to, and I can't believe I'm forgetting the doctor's name now. I feel terrible about that.
1: Uh, Colb, um, Culbers? Something like that?
0: I missed it earlier. But uh, but yeah, anyway, um, the, that he was trying to save him. That he has this relationship, someone that he loves and cares about, and he was willing to risk his life to save another. Um, It may not have been Lorca's life that he was trying to save necessarily, um, or directly, but he was definitely trying to save the life of somebody that he loved. And I think that that is a really big deal.
2: I completely agree with that. It's something any of us would do for our better halves, or our family, or our children, or our friends, and... That humanity aspect of Stamets. Now he's a a brilliant scientist who also has a good sense of humanity to him.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now they just need to come up with a way to interact with the uh, drive that doesn't involve being stabbed
2: four times.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right? I feel like that's a a big design flaw. I was
2: a little worried. I can't believe I'm saying it because I know he's in more episodes. But when they killed off the security officer a week ago... And then Stamets has, like, no bio readings. I'm like, no way. Did they kill two characters in back-to-back episodes? Right. Oh, yeah, That's. I
1: was, I was like, are they going full Game of Thrones where we're just icing characters left and right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, no, that would have been crazy. I mean, because Anthony Rapp, of course, was a huge land as far as casting is concerned. Um, I know so a lot good. of people... So, I mean, he's great, but so many people who are not previously Trekkies were all of a sudden very interested in the show, which I think is a huge thing, you know, in order for star Trek to survive, we need the fan base to continue to grow and to bring in people because they like Anthony Rapp is a big deal. So to kill him off, that would be a, I think that'd be a huge mistake. And in the episode,
2: all talks about the moral dilemmas. We, we examined early on about using the tardigrade. Do we do it or do we not to save Lorca and the, and, and find Lorca. And at the end of the day, saru talking to burnham and he kind of admits that he was wrong and he appreciated her feedback and her guidance and her direction and then he concedes to her as well he's like you know do what you need to do and they didn't try to pressure her and say starfleet needs to tardigrade that was burnham you need to make the right decision that you for the decision you feels the most accurate and correct
1: Yeah, it was was interesting to hear the admiral early on say that all of Starfleet was actively hunting tardigrades. (laughs) Yes, and for them to, for them to flush one out the airlock—the the the only one that Starfleet had in its captivity—just
2: it just went to warp in its own in its own way. And there was a great five-minute quote. Not many people heard, or five-second quote. Excuse me. I don't know how many people remember it when they're talking about using the tardigrade DNA to human and Saru just gets enraged he's like that is completely against the eugenics protocol for yes uh, yeah
0: i love that so name 160
2: Tom. years no 200 like to- how many years 200 years after the eugenics wars and there's no con there's none of that mm-hmm. stuff in this storyline yet they're still worrying about the eugenics wars which i think which i love and saru i mean he didn't he didn't even wait he immediately said that's against the eugenics protocols. That's mm-hmm. someone they actively instruct and teach. Then again, Saru's a smart guy, so he might just know about it.
1: Well, also, Saru comes from a race of, of aliens that are genetically engineered to be livestock, so he's probably particularly sensitive to the, the eugenics protocols and, and all that. That's a good point.
0: Yeah, um, but it is a really great reference drop in there that Khan is still a thing and that war still happened in the Star Trek universe, and Um, the Federation's very weary of it. I think that's a big deal because it always begs the question, like, how come they never tried again? Well, this is why. (laughs) Which goes back to the
2: joke about Bashir being goofy when you realize the truth about Bashir and he is genetically engineered because they improved Mm -hmm. it because of all of his issues he had growing up. So it's always, it's something Starfleet's always towed around and, you know, that if we go to the very end of the episode when uh, they they save Stamets and he's, you know, he's in... uh, they're in their they're in their their um their board uh, not the boardroom their bathroom together yeah the ready ready, they're ready room yeah. their dot what I don't even know what they call it anymore the crew the crew quarters, the quarters. Yeah, I don't know I don't know what just happened yeah, right the there quarters. um they're in their quarters and they're talking and they're chatting and when Stamets <laughs> turns to leave and that part of him still stays there I'm wondering this is my own theory I'm probably wrong but I love theory crafting. I'm wondering if they're going to do some sort of District 9 element where the little bit of tardigrade DNA in stamens is going to somehow start converting him. Ooh. And that's something I think might occur. Even if they don't fully turn him into a tardigrade, it just somehow changes him enough that he starts to lose who he is and starts becoming picking up more tardigrade elements. I don't know what that means. <laughs> but
1: Well, so did they give him tardigrade DNA or did they give him mushroom DNA? Because the tardigrade worked with the Mycenaeum, whatever network because it absorbed the the mushroom DNA.
0: I think so, he was supposed to get the 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 DNA that was both the DNA of okay. the mushrooms that was absorbed into the tardigrade DNA.
1: Oh, okay. So he's part tardigrade and in, part. And the reason I. Yes, he's, he's, he's two picks. Yes, <laughs> we got to come up with a
2: whole new name for that
1: <laughs> to bring it back full
0: circle.
2: Steam. It's great. I don't know. um... But it's yeah, <laughs> But now we have to ask the question of the Tardigrade remembers everything everywhere it's been, and that's how they can travel so fast. Is that why there's two statements at the end? It's because he's remembering where he was. And he was just brushing his teeth, and that's just what the DNA's making him do. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they're both going to wake up the next morning and see another statement staring there and be like, uh... Okay.
1: <laughs> My... <laughs> This is, this is so nitpicky and, and dorky, but I was concerned. Uh, I was like, well, why are they using mirrors when we saw two episodes ago that Michael's mirror is, is an actual hologram projection of herself? It's like, why does she have better crew mirror technology than they do?
0: Oh, see, now I took that as they have family quarters, which actually has like a full like washroom area versus where uh, Michael Burnham is actually in a cadet's quarters.
1: So they have they have to use holographic mirrors for a safe space saving measure.
0: Basically, yeah, that's kind of how I took it. Is they don't really have a separate washroom. They have more military style bunks. Whereas, uh, you know, the the doctor and chief engineer have family quarters together. So,
1: yeah, it's interesting to see that uh, juxtaposition from you know bridge crew officers and Tilly, my favorite character, wonderful Tilly, and and her snoring and her. Awkwardness and her talking about like she said uh, she's heard uh, it's not you it's me a lot of times so Tilly has bad luck in love too. It's just
0: <laughs> no, I, I like that they're showing that dichotomy because it existed on the other Star Trek shows but was rarely ever touched on. That you know the captain and the first officer have very nice quarters, but the you know junior ensign who scrubs the. The manifold Remember, does the, not... Uh, it was Star
2: Trek VI Undiscovered Discovered Country when uh, they're, they're warping to Kittimer and there's three crewmen in one room. And there, it's literally tri-bunk beds.
0: Exactly. And I, I think that that's very common. I mean, we saw it a little bit in Enterprise, which of course is a little more uh, easy to, to, to understand since the ship was so much smaller. But um, it was still the case on Voyager when you saw some of the lower deck stuff from time yeah. to time.
2: Even the whole episode titled Lower Decks talks about that. Um, I, I remember the weirdest things. I can't help it. But, but I don't know about you guys. We've, we've kind of come full circle. We talked about the episode about the moral the moral ambiguity Star Trek has always touched on since the original series, which is always one of the great things. Um, why don't we start getting ready to wrap it up? and uh, Derek, overall, what did you think of Choose Your Pain?
0: Uh, Definitely a better title than the previous episode. Um, (laughs) uh, No, I think that this was the strongest episode so far. I think we're starting to settle in with the characters and allowing them to grow now that we know who they are. Um, The premise was really interesting. The dual plots was really compelling to follow. Uh, So just across the board, I definitely thought this was a better episode. I'm still a little annoyed that they feel compelled to say the episode title in the episode, um, it's just a pet peeve of mine so I kind of hope that that stops but uh, overall the, the, the show is definitely getting better as time goes on
1: wait did they say that that bunch of nonsense about the butcher's knife
0: in episode <laughs> no, four no that one they skipped but they're oh, okay. they are they are four for five so
2: far hmm. so and Jeremy what about you uh yeah I mean th-
1: I, I still think I liked episode three more because it was a bit more action movie Ish, and it was it was fun to see them play with the genres in the, the Star Trek world in episode three, where it was it had that kind of aliens uh, event horizon motif to it. Um, so, I mean, so far with Discovery, my my biggest gripe has been the um, kind of overbearing focus on the Klingons, and I like to see the Klingons as a touch, uh, like as as an enemy that is not used as a co protagonist. Um, so any, any episode that doesn't force us to listen to them droning on at each other, talking about prophecies and, and, you know, holy wars and all that stuff in, in Klingon is, is going to be my, uh, preferred episode of Discovery. But yeah, from a narrative standpoint, I think the AB story parallels are so much better than like we saw in episode, uh, four. And I also like to see, uh character development so anytime we see you know Michael and and Tilly and uh Stamens just kind of doing fun with science that's that's always a fun plot i'm excited to see them do more with the the other bridge crew or the other secondary characters like the uh the redhead with the cyber eye that's always on the bridge cuz they keep showing them and and doing zoom ins on their faces during heated moments but we don't know those people yet so I, I feel like they haven't earned these, like, emotional cutaways that they, they keep relying on. Um, so just from, like, a, a storytelling standpoint, they, they, they haven't done the job of introducing us to who we're looking at and who we're supposed to be caring about yet.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. those are good points. Uh, myself, I loved it because every episode that they're showing, it gets that more and more of that uh, traditional Star Trek feel. With the conflicting stories and the moral discussions and the character growth, and I, right now, it's my favorite of the series so far, because of I think one because of what it's leading into, and you know the next episode, uh, the sixth episode is uh, called I've been you know my Greek is terrible, so I have no idea if I'm pronouncing this word correctly, but the next episode is titled Leth, L E T H E, yeah. Which I believe it, mm-hmm. it means like forgotfulness or oblivion or abandoned. So I'm wondering, you know, my my joking theory is that they're going to somehow get stuck in spore space and that's their that's their oblivion is they have no idea how to get out. And then they find a whole bunch of more tardigrades and the tardigrades turn into be warrior creatures that don't like them for what they did. I don't know. Um, I don't think they're <laughs> going. I don't think they're really going to go that route yet. Um, no,
1: Ripple Ripple will show up and he'll be like their. Uh... Their emissary will be like, "No, my fellow Tardigrades, these are these are my friends." Especially
2: this one, Burnham. Um, well, that was a that's a good episode, and again, I think all three of us agree that we're happy to see Star Trek back and it's continuing to grow and do well. Um, before we wrap up, how can they get a hold of you guys if somebody online is interested in chatting with you or sending you a message, Derek?
0: Well, I of course am the Star Trek dude on Facebook and Twitter, so check me out. I have a public page; you can follow me, all that good stuff.
1: And I am Zen Munken on Twitter, and I host another show on the network on Saturdays called the Saturday Morning Tunecast. Uh, the first episode just dropped last Saturday.
2: And uh, this is Greg Bosco, and you can find me at the underscore Bittersteel at yahoo.com, and the underscore steal at Twitter. Yeah,
0: you can find the show at the uh, Heroes Podcast Network, uh, heroespodcast.com, and at Heroes podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Blog Talk Radio. Um, we have several other shows, depending on what you're interested in. Uh, every Monday, we have our web series called Costume Couture. Tuesdays are uh, Gamer Heroes, our video game podcast. Wednesdays are Screen Heroes, TVs and Movies. Thursdays, of course, is Red Shirts and Runabouts. And as Jeremy mentioned, on Saturdays is the Saturday morning Tooncast. So almost every day of the week.
2: (laughs) We are definitely staying busy. We are trying. We need to find a couple Um, more. (laughs) We
0: do. We're we're working on that. We actually have a couple in the pipeline, so you'll want to stay tuned for that. Um, Finally, of course, if you can and you are in the area, come to Kansas City Comic Con November 10th, 11th, and 12th. We will have a table there, our first ever at a convention, and we will be hosting two or three panels that I'm aware of. So please go check out Kansas City Comic-Con. Is that it, guys? Anything else? I think that's it.
1: Uh, Nope, let's go to Code Black.
0: All right, let's do it. We'll catch you guys next week. Live long and prosper.
1: Remember where we parked.